from the outset in Playa del Rey, it was just pure hysteria, threats of lawsuits and social media histrionics, and doing all these things that had all these repercussive impacts of hurting businesses and making people afraid to drive that way. So the project has never really even had a chance to succeed at all. And we just have never had the environment in Mar Vista on Venice where people could just kind of take it in and see what happens. And there are a lot of people now who, whether they were coming to that area in a car or on a bike, they just don't even feel like it because they just feel like it's a battleground. Here I am with Peter Flax. I became aware of you because on Twitter there was something about one of these haters of the bike lanes. They had a fake profile. It was like a expose you did. Yeah, yeah, West Side Walkers. West Side Walkers. West Side Walkers is this uh, Twitter account where uh, this guy who lives in Playa del Rey uh, pretended to have this uh, Twitter account that was disaffected Department of Transportation employees. And so it was like a intentional trolling of the conversation about road road safety where somebody who was against um you know the road diet and bike lanes uh, pretending to be government employees to just kind of muck with the conversation and i figured out who it was and got him to confess and it was it was a pretty interesting story to report and who was it uh, his name's justin Purcell. he's a uh uh a, a director and producer who does some pretty interesting uh, projects in film and, and video. And, uh, you know, just like a guy who in another context would be pretty interesting to me. Uh, but he, he, he lives right in ground zero when it comes to uh, the reconfiguration in, in Playa del Rey. And he was angry about it and, and came up with a creative way to, uh, obstruct the conversation. So this is a road diet in Playa del Rey? Playa del Rey. It was the reconfiguration that oh, right. uh, was on uh, Vista del Mar along the ocean, and then Culver and, um, and Jefferson and Pershing. Um, and it, it was uh, arguably one of the most controversial road diets in L.A. history. What ended up happening? The short answer is that ultimately... Pretty much all the significant safety measures got reversed, that uh, people who drive cars and uh, feel strongly that they should have their lanes restored prevailed after initiating legal action and uh, a variety of other tactics. Uh, And and, uh, ultimately, they exerted enough political pressure where uh, the city councilman who runs that district had really no good alternative but to reverse the project. Who's the council person for that area? Uh, his name is Mike Bonin. Oh, it's also Mike Bonin. Okay. Wow. Yeah, it is Mike Bonin. He's just getting slammed. Yeah, you know, it's uh, an interesting time where he's one of the few politicians that has really taken a stand for the rights of more vulnerable road users. I think, in general, his policies have supported the vulnerable one way or the other. And, you know, whatever, 2017 has been a different year in politics all around from Washington to the 
local level, and I think it's just a time where uh, someone who is standing up for the vulnerable, you know, if there's a majority of people who have a different point of view, then uh, a lot of times the vulnerable are just getting steamrolled. And so now it's happening again on Venice. Yeah, yeah, the Venice Project was initiated right in the same time frame, and you know, Mike Bonin is, has definitely so far resisted the opposition on that project. I think he feels strongly that the protected lanes there are of benefit to that community, um, but there's still a lot of opposition to that project and, and to other uh, road safety projects and other road diets that are in some level of development in, in Los Angeles. It's, it's definitely becoming like a movement where there are people who are just fighting for the rights of automobile drivers to preserve their lanes. It's like an actual political movement right now. They have these talking points or these arguments. I, I think a big one is that they weren't consulted. Yeah, I mean, that's um, you know, I've, I've followed road diet and bike lane projects around the country for, for years, and it's a really typical refrain that when a road crew finally goes out there to start the work that people complain that they, they didn't know about it. And, you know, I think the case in Playa del Rey was just not at all perfect. I think uh, the communication wasn't ideal, but there were um, something like two years of community meetings le- leading up to it. And um, people who were paying attention knew that it, it was ha- happening. I think it was a lesson in civic communication, and, and uh, Mike Bonin paid the price for not looping certain constituencies into the conversation before it was enacted. If he had, it wouldn't have been put through anyway because of how they feel. <laughs> I mean, that's the, I mean, of course, that's the irony, is, is that the opposition would have expressed disagreement beforehand, and then he would have heard it and gone forward, and then we would have been in exactly the same place now. And so you're, you're right that uh, it, it would have avoided one kind of complaint, but uh, it would have just been replaced with another. So what do you say about the rights of drivers after having thought about this for years? Well, I mean, I, I drove a car like most commuters for many years, and, and so I understand that it sucks that traffic sucks, especially in a sprawling, growing city like Los Angeles. And I empathize with how people feel that that they want to get home to see their kids or they don't want to spend an hour in the car stuck in traffic on on the way to work. But that, um, you know, I still feel like the most important thing our government can do is is, um, keep people from getting killed and that our roads are not safe by any measure and uh, that there's just decades of evidence in Los Angeles that increasing road capacity does not in any way mitigate traffic. And, And so it makes sense on certain roads to, to take, uh, steps to re-engineer them so they're safer for people trying to cross the street or for people trying to ride through their community, and um, and, and that people who drive cars need to sort of recalibrate their way of thinking about things um, so that these safety measures can be pursued. I, I mean, I don't expect them 
to generally do that recalibration, but that's what I'd hope. Are we going to push through and eventually have these uh, better engineered streets? Or eventually, eventually, mm-hmm. but I think there's. I think we're actually in a period here in L.A. where it's um, at least from my point of view likely to get worse before it gets better. I think um, the the you know, groups like Keep L.A. Moving, which is um, sort of leading the charge to represent the interests of the drivers has has momentum and i think more projects will be stalled or stopped or impa- impacted and and so it's really you know I, I i think the roads will eventually get safer and it's just a question of how many years it will take and how many hundreds of people will have to needlessly die before then so it's uh really a painful process to watch because i feel like the end game will be good but um you know people who are just trying to cross these wide boulevards or ride home from their jobs will get hit and die in in the meantime while we're battling over these issues mm-hmm. so you're the the piece you did about this fake west side walkers account that wasn't on red bulletin was it was it your own no, person. no, that that was on a, a a website called Cycling Tips, which is a uh, uh, it was started out as an Australian brand covering cycling, and now they have a um, a U.S. editorial team, and so uh, it was published by that brand, and um, you know read pretty widely throughout the English speaking world. So you know in Australia, in the United States, and Great Britain, places like that. Really, people in other places take an interest in such a local issue. Yeah, I think um, I, I think a lot of Europeans were interested. They they sort of scratched their heads, and um, you know they have a fascination with the United States and our our policies about cars and guns are interesting and mystifying to them. And Australia is more um, culturally. Um, like the United States is, and they're having a lot of the same battles in in cities like Sydney and Melbourne over the rights of cyclists and pedestrians. And so I think uh, the story played pretty widely everywhere, even though it was like this weird, hyper-local L.A. story where a Hollywood filmmaker was um, sort of spreading fake news on, on, on Twitter about bike lanes, it it did have a global play, and then eventually he changes tune a little bit, and now you're on friendly terms. Or am I getting that wrong? We were never really. He's a he's like a smart, funny guy, and his um, his narrative, which I um, sort of don't believe uh, to be to be true, is that at some point he handed over the passwords to this account and he stepped away from it um which is sort of silly but maybe just doesn't matter in the in the long run so yeah we still um communicate on on twitter with each other and it's not like either of us acts like we're mortal enemies um you know i think in the spectrum of people who have um fought these safety uh projects he's not the the you know worst bad actor i've come across and and so we just keep we keep talking but it's uh you know it's really discouraging um to see someone smart who seems to be to have a smart worldview about 
things in general, um, you know, pretending to be DOT employees, saying things that are factually untrue in an effort to kind of sway the converse, the, pu- the public conversation about road safety in his community. That's there's you know it's that's it's just like the fake news phenomenon of 2017 and how people go on social media and confuse the conversation by just throwing out their own opinions as facts. Mm-hmm. So this guy was just doing this for fun, kind of? I mean, this is the way yeah, he spends I his time. Yeah, it was like, it, it was mindful trolling. I think that he um, was both having some fun. You know, I, I'm aware that um, pedestrian and cycling advocates are a pretty earnest bunch, and so to mock them is pretty easy and arguably entertaining if you disagree with them. And and at the same time, I think he understood that, um, that people following these conversations on Twitter would look up the profile of his account and, and see that it was um, claiming to be um, DOT employees who were unhappy with a road project that it had, that, that group had executed, and, and it might just lead some people to feel um, more opposed to it. So, it, it, like, it, it was both fun and, and toxic at the same time, I think. Fun and toxic. Hmm. Yeah. Well, and, it's like 2017 in a nutshell, I uh, think, uh, right? Yeah. And so this is kind of a a um, little version of just the, the big ver- thing that's been going on with our government and the fake news and then uh, the type of people who yeah, are... I, I, and, I find it totally discouraging how um, uh, when you go on Facebook or, or, or Twitter or, or Nextdoor that, um, you know, it's impossible to have normal, constructive, civil discourse because everybody's just throwing out their ideas as facts. And, and therefore, it's hard to make headway in a conversation with your community because uh, there's no agreement about truth and, and facts. And, and um, it, so that I find that really discouraging that, it, that it's, um, you know, that before we even get into the conversation about what people's opinions about a topic like road safety are, we just can't even agree on you know, how many people have been killed on a stretch of road and whether they were jaywalking or not, um, you, you know, all the very basic facts are, are in dispute. Um, and so it just makes it impossible um, for someone who's in the middle who hasn't decided to easily formulate an educated opinion about things. Well, we, you know, we interviewed Selena Inouye from Keep LA Moving, and she was talking about how hard it is for them to get data so where would the data come from? It would come from these agencies, right? And if they don't... Yeah, yeah but, and I don't disagree completely with that point of view where I have some frustration with the city and with the DOT and police entities and, and even just some of the um, dominant news organizations in, in Los Angeles where um, nobody has really stepped in to clear up some of these facts. And... And and so we wind up in this place where differing dueling groups are posting memes on Facebook with data about crashes and 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 
you know, commute delay times and um, the majority of people who aren't fully engaged in the battle and are just sort of spectating it don't know what to think. And and I do think that uh, the city and the DOT could do more to release data that um, could be a foundation for a conversation. Is that going to happen? I mean, as a result of all this? My- I have no idea. I'd yeah. like to think so, but I have not heard... Um, anybody offering to do so. I, th- I, you know, I think that um, the DOT and um, council men like Mike Bonin are a little bit in bomb shelter mode where the attacks have been so relentlessly vicious that they're kind of in hiding where they may feel like the best move is to just try and ride this out rather than at this point to you know, try and give everyone the information they're they're asking for. I was on this task force over the reconfiguration in Playa del Rey, and I do understand that some of the people on the other side of this conversation, you know, de- both demand information and then intend to um, use that information just for their own subjective needs. And so it, it can feel dangerous that you're just going to give people what they ask for, then they're still going to attack you viciously. And and so it's a pretty toxic environment where instead of everybody just coming together, like I I felt like when I came into that task force, even though I had spent a lot of time on social media and I wrote in, you know, an uh, an op-ed for the LA Times, um, you know, being um, pretty firmly on, on, on one side of this debate that I hoped that the task force would get together and that we all would agree that um, we wanted as few people to get hit and killed as possible, and and we wanted people who were commuting to their jobs to have as short a delay as possible. And and yet it just never really worked out where there was a feeling that anybody was serious about finding that common ground in in the middle. And so that, that was like a real disappointing lesson for me to take in. What's the common ground? Well, I think... In a place like Playa del Rey, there's actually a lot of reason to believe that a well-executed road diet would not greatly impact travel times in the long term and then do a lot to reduce the risk of a deadly accident for people crossing the street and make the community more pleasant and and livable, right? Like, there have been hundreds of road diets enacted around the country, and if they're given time to settle in and for engineers to tweak them and the public to get used to the reconfiguration, that ultimately the overall impact on road volume is less than people fear it will be. But from the outset in Playa del Rey, it was just pure hysteria, threats of lawsuits, and social media histrionics uh, where people you know, claiming one-hour delays and posting pictures of waste screenshots and doing all these things that had all these repercussive impacts of hurting businesses and making people afraid to drive that way. So the project has never really even had a chance to succeed at all. Right. Well, the Venice Boulevard one is supposed to be a year-long project. Right. And they want to rip it out before the the year is up, and it's frustrating because the the whole point of it is to get 
is to see how it works. It's right. a, it's, a, it's an it, experiment. I mean, and there's been research done here in Los Angeles and in lots of cities around the world, and um, protected lanes make the biggest impact for uh, casual cyclists. In particular, in research, women have indicated that it's like a game changer for them about whether they feel safe riding in their community. It's just such a an island of in a kind of crazy crazy city to ride a bike in, and and we just have never had the environment in Mar Vista on Venice where people could just kind of take it in and see what happens, and you know see you know what the community would do if if like left to its peace. I think that there are a lot of people now who whether they were coming to that area in a car or on a bike, they just don't even feel like it because they just feel like it's a battleground, right? They go on Facebook and there are claims that people are going out of business because of the protected bike lane, and there's this anecdotal evidence of a rise of accidents, even though DOT says it's not the case. And it's like the people who are behind this opposition have pivoted things in a way where it's doomed on some level to be not the full success it, it could be. Like, they, they've, they've converted that stretch of, of, of Venice Boulevard to a war zone. And, and so, of course, whatever time elapses, it's just not going to seem like it would otherwise. Can you tell what the direction of this, the battle is? It seems pretty embattled. I don't, like, I don't see either side budging right now. I think, you know, Mike Bonin seems committed um, to the project, there's this really inane recall effort centered around this project, and I think he's made it clear that that he's not going to be cowed by that sort of silly initiative. and And I don't see Keep LA moving or the recall effort really de-escalating their communication. I think that um, getting Playa del Rey reconfigured was a boost of adrenaline to realize that with enough hysterical pushback that they could change policy. And so I think it's not clear how it'll turn out. I think it's like still a huge battle. And I, I hope, like I think Mike Bonin hopes that maybe with a little bit of time passing that um, some of the momentum will diminish and that people who go through there, realize that the traffic's just not as bad as they feared it would be, and that they see families with kids and casual cyclists riding around and using the shops, and it just de-escalates. That's just hope. It's not based on um, anything real yet. What is the added wait time? I mean, because that's what it's all about, right? I mean, at the bottom of it all? Yeah, I could tell you my own anecdotal observations, um, which are no better or worse than somebody else's anecdotal observations. I, I ride through the area periodically, just like I rode through Playa del Rey all the time when people were claiming these huge weights. And my impression is that on most days and at most times on there, it really just seems like a couple of minutes of difference. And just to state the obvious, all of these areas in Los Angeles already had really crappy traffic, that Playa del Rey and Mar Vista um, already had 
days and times where it was gridlocked. And so now with everybody paying such keen attention, you know, anytime that there's gridlock for a couple of blocks, it's like because of this project that anytime somebody feels like cars are cutting through their neighborhood, you know, they feel like it's because of these projects, even though Waze has been, you know, diverting huge volumes of traffic off of arterial roads through neighborhoods for a long time in L.A. Now, you know, it's just it's a convenient time for every problem to be blamed on this reconfiguration. To get back to your, I'm calling it an expose, how did you out this guy? How did you do your sleuthing and find out that his West Side Walkers was a fake? I discovered that account because I had been already debating or, or arguing with um, uh, this director, and and then all of a sudden this new account was sort of part of the conversation, and there'd be these, like, dialogues where I'd be talking to both accounts at the same time, and they'd be um, agreeing with each other in in this, like, sock pocket, puppet sort of fashion, and it led, and, and using some of the same language, you know, just in the sky was a, a writer, and it felt like the same voice, and other advocates who felt like the account was trolling them felt felt the same way, and and so that you know led to some detective work that made me feel convinced that it was the same person, and then ultimately I struck up a text and email conversation with him, and he admitted that it had been him. Oh, he just admitted it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was just like. I think at that point I was I had made it clear that it, this wasn't like some sort of piece of criminal investigative reporting. It's like you know it's a story about somebody who's a Hollywood writer just pretending to be someone else in a Twitter account. There's something sort of weird and um, you know non-criminal about that, and, and so I, I think at some point he realized that it wasn't like he was going to get in trouble and that uh, maybe I would go away. Didn't you make a bluff? Didn't you tell him that you've... you've... I did. I, I mean, it, at some point, I felt like I wouldn't have known how to end this story because I just couldn't prove it was him. I had proof that his account and the West Side Walker's account had cell phones and email accounts associated with it who seemed to be the same, but I couldn't prove that. And so I really just didn't know how to definitively be able to say it's him. I did write him and tell him that I had evidence that it was him and that I was going forward with a story. And if he had just continued to parry with me, I, I would have had to tell the story differently. But he wound up you know, going for that bluff and saying it was him, which made my story quite a bit easier to end. Maybe we could have him on and we could talk to him. We were talking about getting somebody from the other side and their other point of view represented and debating. Yeah, I mean, he would be interesting. He's kind of a joker in this, so I just don't... He, he really hasn't um, in any way branded himself as somebody who's this um, credible, authoritative right. voice on this. He's played this smart aleck troll, but he's an interesting guy. He's funny. But there are others. Yeah, you... there are others, sure. That, that maybe we'll get on and we'll have like a little debate. Yeah, it'd be great. I love debate. Cool. All right. Well, we'll try to set that up. Okay. Yeah. Anything else that you're working on? Well, I uh, just wrote a, another piece for Cycling Tips about assessing my, my year of, of riding in 2017. It uh, was about how I, um, after years of 
of having this identity around being a recreational cyclist who, you know, wore spandex and tried to go fast, that this was a year where I really reimagined myself as a cyclist and a commuter and an advocate and someone who has shut off all of their technology and and just through all this sort of transformation to become this different kind of cyclist that I used to be and how satisfying I'm finding it it, it to be. And this is at cyclingtips.com. That's correct. All right. Thanks for talking. We said it'd be about a half an hour, and so it is. Maybe debate next. Sounds good. Thanks, Peter. Have a great day. Okay, you too, Nick. Thanks for listening to this episode of Bike Talk. If you want to hear more, go to kpfk.org, navigate to programs, and choose Bike Talk. On the Bike Talk page, click on the archives link to play or download shows posted in the last four months. Go to biketalk.com and copy or click on the RSS link to subscribe. Our Twitter handle is BikeTalkPFK. On Facebook, we are Bike Talk. You can become friends and join our group. 